0: Hey everybody, I'm Kristen Hostetter, and you're listening to the Straight Talk podcast by Outside Business Journal. We've got a really special episode today, and I wanna start off by thanking my amazing guest, Stephanie Maez, for her incredible courage and vulnerability in sharing her very personal story about the healing power of nature. Stephanie is the Managing Director of Outdoor Foundation. She came to this role recently after serving as a state legislator in New Mexico. This is her first job in the outdoor industry, but since she was a little girl growing up in Albuquerque, she has felt the power and pull of being outside. And when her life and the life of her son took some traumatic turns in 2015, it was nature that kept her afloat and allowed her to persevere. Her lived experience has given her the perspective that has led her to this role leading the Outdoor Foundation, and it's hard to imagine anyone being better suited to do the work that she's doing but let's let Stephanie share her own powerful story.
1: Stephanie, how are you? Thanks for being here. I'm well. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Good. Well, well let's get right into it. You are fairly new into this, in this role. Yes. I, I'd love to hear more about your journey into this role, how you got here, where you've been before, before you took the role.
1: Absolutely, you are right on. I am not only new to this role, but I'm new to the outdoor industry. I, you know, come to this role from primarily a public policy, civic engagement, political background. I'm a former state legislator out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and have had the pleasure of running several state-based nonprofits with policy focus, some of which was on the environment and on outdoor recreation, but really around mobilizing voters for systems change. And so you know, one might ask, well, why the Outdoor Foundation, you know, and so for me, this role really, and this job is so much more than just a job. I come to this position from a very personal experience. While I was serving in the state legislature, my son was wrongfully accused of murder, and he was not aware of the crime, had no participation, let alone commit a murder. He was 18 years old, and i was i was young when i had him and i was serving in the legislature and as a mother it was devastating and we're still healing from it he spent a year in jail for this and during that year kristen i think it's fair to say that i I truly almost lost myself and it was through the outdoors that i was able to really cope to heal to be strong i also have a 13 year old daughter and this was several years ago so she was younger at the time and and experiencing firsthand the transformative benefits of the outdoors has just been a life-changing experience. And now I've been um, just really I really feel driven. I feel like this is my purpose. this is my life's work. And so I can use the skills and the experience that I have in the policy space and the program and nonprofit space, fundraising and philanthropy to really continue to be an evangelist for this work and. I think it's also important to note growing up in Albuquerque I grew up in a really poor neighborhood and access to the outdoors was not really an option for us and so my myself and my little brother and so I can really identify with many of the folks that participate in our thrive programs um our youth and so it's just it was through actually being able to go to my grandparents cabin as a young person once, twice, maybe three times a year, depending on the year up in the San Juan Mountains in Southern Colorado, that it's, it planted that seed for me. And when that seed was planted and all of the, the traumatic events unfolded with my son, I, there was no, no place like the outdoors and the mountains that, I, that was able to really calm me down and to bring me back and to give me the strength to persevere through such a traumatic situation. So now I feel like, and and I, I, I feel like sharing my, my story is, is important, but I recognize that it can also be somewhat people, people like traumatizing for the people that I'm telling and, and often don't know how to respond. So, you know, that this may be a little deep, but it's straight talk. So I'm giving it to you straight, you know, that this is what brought me here. And I just, I pinch myself. I tell, I tell my board (laughs) that my dirty little not so secret secret is that I would actually pay to do this work. I feel so privileged to be able to get up every morning and do the work that we're doing. Oh
0: my word. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I'm so sorry that you, that you went through that. I can't even imagine how traumatic that must be and i'm really grateful that you're sharing that with me now i have a lot of questions about that how long ago when did that that traumatic situation kind of re- resolve itself
1: your son is not in jail anymore it, it sounds like it's well, actually a different story he is currently in jail he was 18 years old when this happened he was arrested in August of 2015 and then released in June of 2016. And he, after his release developed, and I don't want to get too much into it because it really is his story, but you know, 18 years old in an adult jail created a severe case of PTSD and developed an addiction. And so several months after his release, he, got pretty deep into his addiction. He was in recovery for some time, but then on an unrelated nonviolent offense related to his addiction, unrelated to the murder charge, but related to his addiction, was arrested. And he's had some struggles since then, as our whole family has. And he's in jail right now. And, And again, it's, you know, addiction and the criminal justice system and the lack of options and the punitive nature and the stigmatisms around addiction have sort of contributed to the cyclical experience that we've had with the criminal justice system in the last few years. And so I am so grateful. I have this beautiful mountain. I live in a townhouse at the base of the Sandia mountains. And to this day, every morning, getting up and being able to go and take my dog for a hike in the mountains, it provides that, that sanctuary, that solace, because yeah, having your your oldest child in jail is just—it's—he'll be out soon, and it's not—it's—you know—it's, yeah, it's hard. Oh my gosh! Well, I was—I really was not expecting
0: this—this uh, this story. I guess I wasn't very prepared for this. And as a mother of two boys, it—it's—it's it's incredibly moving, and—and and I can't imagine what you've been going through. So uh, I kind of need a moment here to process. Yeah. And then we can move on.
1: Well, thank you for sharing and for allowing me to share my story. And I, you know, I really wasn't sure how much detail I wanted to go into on this particular forum, but I feel like it's so important to talk about these things because families, everybody has something, you know, and I think oftentimes with social media and, you know, the the need to just put on this, everything is perfect, white picket fence facade is just, it's not real and I wanna be real and I wanna be, it's painful and it sucks and it's, and there's healing and resiliency and faith that I tap into that I wouldn't have if I didn't have the opportunity to experience this adversity you know, and you, as a mom, you know, you just want to fix it and you want it to go away and you want to protect your kids. He's 24 years old now. Well, he'll be 24 on April 9th. And, um, he, he, he has to make some choices, you know, and I'll love him unconditionally and be here for him. And, you know, he actually loves the outdoors. He used to tie his own flies and he used to, you know, we'd go fishing and on flow trips and we, you know, it, we talk about it when he gets out, which will be soon, you know, we're going to spend a week in the mountains. And so,
0: well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think a lot of people can relate in some capacity to, to some of the things that you, that you've just shared with us. i um, really grateful that you, that you feel safe enough to do that. And thank you for that. Thank you. Can you Can you explain or can you tell us a little bit about your first introduction as you remember it to the outdoors, because I think, you know, I think nature in the outdoors is a way of healing for so many people, Uh, big traumas, little traumas, you have a crappy day, you feel better when you go outside you know, I think any, anyone that's watching this in our audience can relate to that in some degree. Can you take us back a little bit and remember, you know, maybe some of the first times that you felt that, that healing when you went outside and and experienced outdoors and nature?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So I think my most vivid memories as a young, as a child, probably my, actually my earliest memories have been from being in outdoor spaces with, you know, as I, as I mentioned, we grew up I grew up really poor and we didn't, you know, it wasn't like going to, you know, the ski slope or the rock climbing gym or the, you know, so my mom would take us to the stuck pond over at the university of New Mexico. And so, you know, she worked her butt off and, um, and so when we were able to really spend quality time together outside, it just felt so expansive and free and healing and at that time you know when you're five and six years old you're you're just enjoying and just wanting you know just just experiencing soaking it all in i remember the ducks would chase me because we would take stale bread or stale tortillas and the duck, you know we feed the ducks and they would chase me and then i also remember her parents my grandparents had a cabin out at viacito lake in southern colorado And I'd go out and spend, you know, spring break there, summertime there. And I remember feeling like at that point, as I was getting older and into middle school, it just, it really felt like the twilight zone, you know, I felt like I was, in just this completely different like space, which I was, you know, but it really truly felt as we would drive out of the city, it just felt like I was, I was going into like a whole new world. And, and so I feel so grateful that I had those memories and those seeds were planted at such a young age. So when, you know, my son, I I was, became pregnant with my son when I was 15 and I had him when I was 16, Mm -hmm. you know, thank God for my family. And I was able to they you know helped me through high school and college and I was able to get my master's degree and and be able to you know provide for my son although my mom always said she's like I will help you but I will not be a built-in babysitter so there was none of that going on but but I say all that to say having the seeds of the outdoors truly planted at an early age for me while I didn't get those repeat experiences throughout the year because we did live in much more of an urban area where green spaces and access to the outdoors isn't as feasible which is a real barrier I suspect we'll talk about further in the conversation but I was able to take my son out to the cabin to my grandparents cabin and it planted that seed with him and so now you know when he calls me we talk almost every day if not every day every other day And, you know, he still suffers with the PTSD and anxiety and panic. And so if he's like on the verge of having a panic attack, we'll go through and we'll walk through some visualizations of being in the outdoors and and breathing and really. So, you know, I think I over answered your question, (laughs) but it's been, I mean, you can see just the richness that the outdoors brings. And I don't know, I just, I can't shout it from the rooftops loud enough, (laughs) you know. It's amazing. And I think you bring up a really
0: good point about the fact that you don't need to hike down into the Grand Canyon or climb Mount Rainier or hike the Appalachian Trail in order to experience the benefits of being outdoors. You just don't, you know, you can get it when you walk out your front door, it's there for you. Yes, we do need to reduce barriers so that people can, you know, expand those, those horizons and, and get deeper into the outdoor experience, I think but but I, I think you bring up such a great point that that we have to embrace you know the, we have to expand sort of coming from the outdoor industry, we have to expand what we think of as getting outdoors because it's not just hiking the
1: Pacific Crest
0: Trail, right?
1: Yep, that's exactly right. It's redefining. And, and you, I think, hit the nail on the head with the word expand, you know, expanding our definition. And then that creates a culture of inclusivity because, you know, we know diversity doesn't mean inclusivity. And if we truly want to create a welcome and inclusive space, outdoor spaces, we have to redefine because it, I mean, I guess everybody has their own experience. And for those that have the opportunity to, you know, hike, the Pacific Crest Trail like go for it this is uh, I'd love to do Kilimanjaro at some point and that's uh, on my list like if I could show you my refrigerator it's full of pictures for but that's not happening in the next you know near term so the La Luz Trail up here at Sandia is and and hiking around the park and you know going to the duck pond and doing yoga and you know it's it's it all outside you know it all it all you can experience the transformative benefits without having to go do Everest, of the outdoors. For sure, for sure. To anybody who's climbing Everest, like that's great.
0: <laughs> More power to them, right?
1: More power to you. <laughs>
0: Let's talk about Thrive Outside. Mm. Can you your favorite topic probably yes. right? One of them. <laughs> so tell us what Thrive Outside is
1: and and how the program works. Absolutely. So Thrive Outside was started about a year and a half, almost two years ago by my predecessor, Lisa Onnenberg. and it is the Outdoor Foundation's primary grant making vehicle. And what we're doing is we're investing in a collective impact model where we're funding through multi-year capacity building grants, networks of organizations in regions throughout the country. Currently we're in four regions. We're in San Diego, Atlanta, Grand Rapids and Oklahoma city. And the structure is that there is a backbone organization that sort of serves as the kind of hub, and then they are convening coalitions of partner organizations that are specifically dedicated to increasing youth participation in outdoor spaces, primarily from communities of color and other BIPOC communities. And so it's just really exciting to see the learning that's taking place. That's the other sort of key component of the Thrive Outside model is that our networks are learning from each other. We have a very robust qualitative and quantitative evaluation program where we're able to measure our impact on both increasing you know, participation in the outdoors, but also what does that actually mean for the kids that are participating? How is this impacting around metrics around, you know, positive youth development, grit, confidence, sense of place, sense of space, you know, uh, navigating adversity. And then we're also measuring other metrics in the sort of EE21 environmental stewardship. What does it mean to be a conservationist? What what are public lands? What are, you know, so those learnings are then, you know, able to be shared between networks on what's working what's not working. And then also within the context of the larger sort of collective impact learning community, we're able to to build on that body of knowledge. Wow, well, it's an amazing program for sure. I'd love it if you could give us a,
0: and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but can you give me an example, maybe a snapshot of a kid who's had an experience in one of your Thrive Outside uh, communities? and 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 how that's gone down and what he or she has learned and how that's impacted his or her life
1: sure so one well first one key variable to consider is that when thrive was launched it was right before covid and so going into covid many of our programs faced a tremendous level of restrictions for the health and safety of communities particularly because you know the to run program there were transportation variables and of course being in such close proximity wasn't safe so you know the the um scale of the of the programs and the participant numbers that we saw in 2020 are not what they're going to be in 2021 and moving forward outside of you know a less covid restricted environment that being said the the participants that were able to enjoy the experiences through our programs in 2020. I would say one example maybe is in San Diego, there are some great programs running through outdoor, the San Diego Outdoor Outreach, which is one of the key partner organizations of the Thrive Outside San Diego. And we'll see youth from, you know, eight years old up through into their early 20s. And what we've learned within those, one, the other key variable is that these are about repeat experiences. So these kids are coming to programs, you know, multiple times and really the the, the theory, right, is that after experiencing a certain number of repeat experiences outside, know it becomes a habit and that's what we want to do is we want to inspire the outdoor habit with these kids and so you know they'll go kayaking or they'll go for a hike with their counselors or the volunteer staff and what we're finding is that kids when they so they have an opportunity to complete a survey or go through an interview or tell their story to you know volunteer of of their experience and what we're finding is as they have multiple repeat experiences, that their confidence level increases, their sort of approach to adversity and being able to take on challenges becomes more, becomes stronger, that they have a, more of a sense of what does it mean, again, to be, you know, to be sort of a conservationist. We don't necessarily use that language, but um, so, so the data is new you know given that the program is new the data is new but the theory then too is with all of this how is that going to impact from a longitudinal standpoint graduation rates for youth participants four years down the road if they're starting in ninth grade in one of our programs one of the thrive programs so It's a lot, it's really robust. And I would encourage your audience to check out our website. We have our 2020 impact report that really outlines a lot of that. And there's actually some links to videos that really tell the story much in much more of a, you know, direct on the ground way from the participants themselves. Oh, great. I'm gonna check those out for sure. I read that Thrive Outside
0: has some pretty ambitious goals for the next three to four years. Is it true that you're going to be expanding into 16 cities in, over the next three years? And, and and if so, how on earth do you do you create that a rollout of that scale and size?
1: Yes, excellent question, and it is exciting and it is ambitious, and I'm also very confident that we're going to meet those goals. Given especially given the impact that we're seeing in communities and the level of interest. So yes, 16 cities in 3 years, 32 cities in 5 to 7 years and beyond. So the cadence would be four cities per year, you know, for 5 years would get us to that 32 32 cities. <clears throat> to your question about the how. So the in order to go into a city, as I said, our theory is that we really need to make investments that are specifically capacity building and about strengthening the infrastructure. And in doing so, you know, we're supporting sort of serving as a catalyst to help these networks of organizations become fully self-sustaining after their three-year grant cycle is up with the Outdoor Foundation. And so as we're bringing on new cohorts, you know, old cohorts are sort of cycling off from a grant receiving standpoint. However, what we do want to continue to do is fully resource those cohorts that are no longer that are post their three-year grant cycle to be able to continue to participate in the Thrive learning community and to to continue with the evaluation and data collection. How that happens is through generous support from both industry partners, non-industry partners, so non-endemic corporations, foundations um, were actively and aggressively pursuing a very diverse fundraising strategy and portfolio. And the interest, especially given the pandemic has just been really phenomenal. People are really interested and really engaged because this is this is a new and innovative model. you know, there are other organizations that are doing similar programming work, but not necessarily on the scale and definitely not through a collective impact model. Yeah, you bring up a good point. There's, there's so much competition out there right now, right, for funding
0: among nonprofits and foundations and affiliate groups, affinity groups, advocacy groups, all looking for funding and resources. So what's your strategy for competing in that really competitive landscape for that, that crucial funding that you need to, to make this, this program successful?
1: You know, it's interesting, Kristen, that you brought this up and I think that it really it goes back to my approach to both fundraising and life in general. Like I think that if we have a competitive scarcity mindset, there are finite resources. If we are working together and those other organizations, foundations, programs that are running really great programs, If we're able to come together and collaborate and figure out where we can reduce, you know, duplication and increase efficiencies, then we can maximize the dollar that exists for funding programs like these. So figuring out that that collaboration, I think, as well as looking at how we can make the pie bigger and how we can move away from that sort of competitive scarcity mindset or approach and really operate from more of an abundance perspective will help us think and be more creative in identifying revenue streams that are recurring and that can actually grow the pie. So, you know, yes, it's competitive. And I think that it's if we are able to sort of shift how we approach from collectively in this sector, organizations doing this work, I think that sky's the limit. And I think there's enough resources to fund all of our great work. I love that. Partnerships are key. Key. We're
0: stronger. We're stronger together. Together we are a force.
1: Yes. (laughs) Lisa will love that. (laughs) And I love that.
0: (laughs) I love that too. Best tagline ever.
1: It's yes. And it's so true. And not just in the outdoor industry. I you can tell I've been I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I've been studying Eastern philosophy and religion. And like it's it's true. Like it's together we are a force across the board.
0: For sure. All right, let's switch gears a little bit here. I've spoken to so many people on this topic, and opinions vary a lot. Some people see really positive change in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion in our industry, and others feel like we're just not making the progress that we need. We've covered diversity equity inclusion in in our brand in our titles on our site on our website in our stories a lot we will continue to do that it's really important that we elevate voices and and keep pushing our industry on these fronts i'm just curious how you what's your opinion on state of diversity in the outdoor industry and and do you have any in your, in your specific role, which I think gives you the opportunity to really touch these communities that we're talking about, what can people watching here really do to move the needle and, and quickly get more people of color, not only outside and experiencing nature, but working in leadership roles in our
1: industry? See, that's critical, Kristen. I think that that system's change and who sits in what seats and what seats of power matter. And I think to your question about where are we at in terms of our work on this on diversity, equity and inclusion, absolutely, we have a lot of work to do. But guess what? So does, you know, X industry and in the other on the other side of the spectrum. And so does, you know, in my former political life, so does the public administrative and the bureaucratic side and the public sector side you know, we have a lot of work to do. I think I'm inspired and encouraged by how far we have come as a non-outdoor industry insider. I will say I felt when I came into this role and having seen the work that was done specifically around creating a DEI task force, looking at operationally, how are we getting our own organizations in order in terms of oia and the outdoor foundation before we seek to prescribe anything to anybody in any industry is huge we have to be willing to have those uncomfortable conversations and look in and even you know as a a woman of color i i personally have a lot of work to do you know racial identity is only one piece of what inclusivity means And so, you know, in learning and growing and being okay with being like, I don't know what to do on this issue, or I don't know what, how, what I'm saying might potentially be harmful to somebody who doesn't identify in the same way that I do, whether it's on gender or race or, so I think, you know, we have come a long way. And we have, we have a long way to go, you know, but I, but I feel great. And I think that I feel great about where we're at. I think today, I mean, you might ask me after a meeting with some folks that I feel like maybe have, you know, like where (laughs) the conversation isn't like this and, and maybe I would be less feeling great about it, but you know, it ebbs and flows. And, and I think that it's just about being comfortable with having those uncomfortable conversations and, to your point about the leadership piece systems change happens when we're able to have power in places where there is an opportunity for leadership and that happens through pipeline development and through inclusivity you know from the ground up from you know increasing access to state parks through free admission or providing free transportation for folks in historically underrepresented communities to be able to go 30 miles to the state park and to invest in public infrastructure that are, you know, real urban green spaces that don't exist in many urban communities. So starting there, and then how are we being intentional about cultivating leaders in community that are actually like community led? That's the thing is we have to be willing... I think in the industry, to step out and allow others to have power and and not step out in a way that decreases our power because there's enough of it to go around, but that is about listening to, to community and putting community in a place of leadership.
0: Yeah, I love what you said about pipeline and developing that that pipeline of, of talent in, in bringing people up through sort of the ranks because that that is truly the way we're going to make that change at leadership level for sure. I also love what you said about having uncomfortable conversations. And we were so thrilled to partner with OIA last week to host that webinar on the N-word, which I think was a very uncomfortable conversation that actually turned out to be a fabulous conversation, I think. And if you haven't watched Uh, that webinar. Everybody tune in and, and check it out because it was really, really, really insightful. So thank you to you, Stephanie and OIA for supporting that and partnering with us on that. Let's see, let's switch gears here for a minute. We're both women. We're both in leadership positions in the outdoor industry. I know OIA has a lot of women leaders in its structure as well. How do you think the industry is doing in terms of elevating women in, in leadership roles and in sort of closing that gender gap?
1: Well, I think so, you know, again, being an outdoor industry sort of non-insider, I don't have a lot of the historical context necessarily, but as I'm getting up to speed and really getting a sense of the lay of the land, it seems to me, that you know women are becoming more and more represented in leadership positions when you look as you said at the OIA board at our board at the outdoor foundation the uh sort of leadership executive level positions within the organizations are occupied by by women and i think that that's great and i think that we're just a small segment of the outdoor industry and so when i look at you know across the board at some of the larger industry companies, and you look at you know, the C-suite and you look at who is in those positions, I think we still have some work to do on, on what women in those positions of power look like. And I think that it can't just be counting the number of women executives. I think that we also have to look at what sort of roles and positions those executives are. Are they truly positions of influence? Are they really, or is it, you know, we talk about this in other areas of diversity, equity and inclusion, particularly around race and ethnicity. Is it more of a performative approach or are these roles actually shifting the culture and making it even more inclusive for young girls to really see themselves in those positions of power because that's where I think it starts, is that real culture shift. And, you know, it's like the 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 old saying, and I guess it's not an old saying, but you often hear, you know, women are assertive and they come across as the B word, which I almost just said, and I'm pretty proud of myself, but I didn't actually say the word because I don't know what your policies are. But, you know, and, 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 but men are assertive and they're leaders. And that's crap. That's absolutely crap. I love the fact that my 13 year old daughter is not afraid to speak her mind, say her opinion, and take a leadership role and be assertive. And I think that I'm trying to model that behavior and not be afraid of being called the B word, you know? And I think that we've come a long way since, you know, since the dawn of time, (laughs) you know, because it's, it's, and we have a long way to go, you know? And it's also about creating ally ships and, and really seeking and having an expectation that men in positions of power are being allies and, and supportive of both policies that lift up women in leadership and actually having women in leadership and the way that they interact with, with women in leadership. So,
0: Well, I'm just going to say it right now. The word the B word, bitch, bitches unite. Let's be bitches, let's embrace it.
1: (laughs) That's right, Kristen, bitches unite.
0: Right, we're gonna make up bumper stickers.
1: Of all the stickers, for my laptop, for, yes. Right.
0: Well, Stephanie, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I'm really happy to have the opportunity to introduce you to our audience who may not have gotten to know you Since you started in the middle of this crazy COVID pandemic and we haven't had face-to-face time, we haven't had big gatherings. So I feel really honored that you've spent some time with
1: us today. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you for
1: the opportunity and thank you so much for your commitment to these issues and engaging and having you know i think what some would say are can be hard and uncomfortable conversations and you all are at the forefront of that so thank you for sure and thank you everybody for tuning in to this
0: episode of straight talk we've got lots more conversations like this on our website so please check us out the outdoor industry is full of fascinating people doing bold things whether it's in sustainability, diversity, equity, and inclusion, specialty retail, activism, marketing, or brand building. And here at Straight Talk, we dive straight in. This episode was produced by me, Kristen Hostetter. Our executive producer is Jeff Moore. Our executive audio engineer is John Barclay. Our associate producer is Ashish Threstha. Our production assistant is Luisa Albanese. Please subscribe today to the Straight Talk podcast write us a review, and of course, stay up on the latest outdoor industry news at outsidebusinessjournal.com.